I interviewed Barack Obama, and that was very interesting because his mom uh, and I went to the same high school. So I walked in, and as an interviewer of a president, you get about three minutes, max. So the first thing I said to him is, I went to school with your mom. From Wild Rye, it's Wild Rye Radio, a show about breaking trail and the characters who led the way. I'm Cassie Abel, and on today's episode, we'll find out how Jean Anderson shattered glass ceilings and paved the way for women in broadcast journalism across the globe. Jean Anderson is Seattle's original TV darling as a leading lady on the 5, 7, and 11 o'clock NBC news desk for almost half a century. As the first female news anchor and the longest-running anchor in the country, Jean shares stories about how she broke into the biz, some of her most memorable interviews with the likes of Barack Obama and Jimmy Carter, balancing motherhood with primetime, and even her own Me Too moments, and frankly, how she shut them down. Thanks for listening. I'm here with Jean Anderson. Um, she really is America's original Veronica Corningstone. You've seen the movie Anchor Man, right? Yes. Yes. So that was all about um, a female news anchor, the first in the business in a fictional way. Well, Jean was the real life version of that. Um, so tell us about your early years. What led you to broadcast journalism? A total accident. Really? Yeah. <laughs> tell us about that. I was in graduate school and I ran out of money. And so in near the department where I was studying, they had... A television class and we learned how to shoot film and we learned how to write scripts for TV and I thought this was way more fun than what I was doing before and so I got a master's degree in broadcasting and film then I got a master's degree in poli-sci and then I went straight to CBS in San Francisco and got a job writing or helping write editorials for the station manager and I thought this is really fun This is maybe more fun than getting a PhD in teaching political science, as my father said, to other students who won't know what to do with their political science degree either. (laughs) So I backed into it, and it turned out to be like a super fun, fitting career for me. Yeah. So did you always know, like once you got into the industry, did you know that you wanted to be on the anchor desk eventually? No. 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 Because I think that job didn't exist for women at the time. Mm -hmm. And I guess I had a stunted imagination because I couldn't imagine myself sitting there where the guy sat um, with a guy voice Mm -hmm. being an anchorman. I just couldn't imagine it. So it was some years later that I asked the boss at the station I worked at next, which was in Seattle, my home, could I like at least try out? No, 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 no. The audience... Wouldn't accept a woman, um, not enough authority, just not used to it. The risk is too high. We could lose a lot of money. And I'm like, wow, that all sounds really bad. (laughs) I better put this to rest. And asked a whole bunch of other times over a couple of years. And pretty soon they go, well, we, you know, can't be any worse than we're doing. Let's try her. And I was really lucky because the man who was the anchorman moved over for me Mm -hmm. and helped me a lot and was very supportive. And all the guys that I worked with on the anchor desk thereafter, same thing, was like, come on, we're partners, this is going to work out great. So I have nothing but rave reviews for all the guys that I worked with. That's amazing. Yeah, because you spend a lot of time with them. You spend all day. You share an office with them. I Mm -hmm. mean, so I'm lucky about the people with whom I worked. Really wonderful people. Really wonderful. Yeah, so they felt, they seemed welcoming and... Excited to have something new. I mean, it was the first news station in the country to have a woman behind the anchor desk. So, right. 
Yeah, was there resistance was, to that beyond the initial conversations with the bosses? Or well, I'm sure was, there were some people that would say, um, I mean, I kind of felt it like, okay, let's, let's watch this flop. <laughs> let's see how this goes. Mm-hmm. Let's see how long this lasts. And, but I think by and large, people were, um, my workmates were really supportive, really supportive. And the other thing that was odd at the time, it's hard to imagine this now, but there was only one other woman in the newsroom when I uh, was hired, and she was the admin for the boss in the newsroom. And then they hired one other woman, um, and they assigned us to the same, this will tell you how long ago it was, they assigned us to the same typewriter. (laughs) And she goes, I didn't go to all this school to sit down at a typewriter again. And I'm like, I'm okay with it. So she quit, and I sat by that typewriter, and um, then they hired another woman. So there were two of us female reporters, and then the whole rest of the room and the bosses and the photographers were all men. Mm-hmm. The ph- photographer thing was a little bit um, more difficult. I, don't, I worked with a number of guys that weren't particularly accepting. One guy's like, yeah, you can ride with me, but I'm not getting out of the car to shoot the story with you. And I'm like, gee, wouldn't it be better pictures if you got out of the car instead of just rolling down the window and shooting out of the car. <laughs> I'm not getting out of the car for you. And then there was Whoa. another guy who was like, I want to go look at girls. And I'm like, uh, not really part of the job description. So, and he was like fixed on like driving around together and looking at girls. Yeah. Weird. And I said, how about this? Why don't we shoot the story first, and then you can drop me off at the station, and I'll put the story together, and you can drive around and look at girls. Okay, that was the deal. That's how we worked that one out. Oh, man. Yeah. What year was that? Oh, it was like um, a century ago. No. <laughs> so I started um, in Seattle in 1968, and I started anchoring in 1972, and I quit anchoring basically last year, except that now I anchor some specials about health. Mm-hmm. that play right back there on that same station. That's so it's great. Crazy. Only I do it for the hospital in Seattle, Seattle Children's that I work for now, mm-hmm. and produce things with them that also air on television. So crazy. got the best part of my old job reporting about health, yeah. fitness, health, medicine, science, that kind of thing. Over the course of, what, 48 years at the Anchor Desk? Um, you've traveled all over the world, interviewing some of the biggest names and uncovering some of... Some pretty big stories. Um, what were some of the most memorable? Any highlights? Well, I think the biggest highlight was after the United States and China normalized relations um, in the mid-70s, my TV station sent me and a photographer to China. And the goal was, quote, to find the truth. And I had never been overseas for the station before, and I thought China's a big country, I knew that much, and the history between the two countries was changing and becoming a little bit more positive in the late 70s, and I didn't know what truth it was particularly that I was supposed to find. And whereas today, you'd have to produce something in a day or two and put it on the air, or same day, or live from China, they gave us six months to produce something from China. And they gave us as much time as we wanted to travel. So I spent six weeks on the road with the photographer, and we went to China. We went to Egypt uh, for the peace talks. We went to London, and then we came home. And it was just the most magnificent experience ever. And the truth, as I realize now, is (laughs) ever-changing. 
And the truth of the time was China was just emerging from a long, long period of being closed off from the rest of the world. And everything to us seemed so backward. Um, as a blonde, I walked into small towns where they'd never seen a tourist, let alone a blonde. And some of them were just amazed or shocked or ran the other way. They thought it was the white devil coming back again. And other people were, you know, let's dance in the park together. And we have pictures of like a thousand Chinese men, because women didn't go out as much, a thousand Chinese men and me and the photographer dancing in the park. Wow. And it's quite a fabulous picture. And it's quite a fabulous experience to think that we were the first, we were in so many towns that we went to, the first Americans that these townspeople had met. And the economy was backwards. The agriculture was backwards. The use of natural resources seemed backwards to us. There were men on hand saws trying to saw through six foot in diameter logs and two men on either end of a saw that was like 12 feet long trying to work their way through a log. And you think about how mechanized our logging and, and um, lumbering material was at the time. We were decades ahead of them. Now you, you, know, you fast forward to today and it's a very competitive situation with the United States and China economically, politically. Um, the, the rest of the story is yet to be written. Yeah, I guess so. Another question. Uh, were there any unusual things that happened because you were the first, the first woman in the newsroom on these trips? Well, one of the things I think that everybody was trying to get used to is women's voices don't sound the same as men. So that was, I think, what held up a lot of people that the viewers of the listeners wouldn't think that you were authoritative enough because you didn't have a big, deep voice. So one news director hauled me into his office and his office had curtains, big, dark, thick, green curtains. And he closed the curtains and he closed the door and he said, come on in and sit down. So I'm relatively new and this was all a bit intimidating. And he opened up his desk drawer and he pulled out a carton of cigarettes and he said, I want you to smoke these. And then he pulled out his bottom desk drawer and he like plunked down this bottle of whiskey on the desk. And he said, I want you to drink this because... Only these things are going to make your voice deeper. And we've got some alcohol issues in the family, so I didn't think that that was going to be a good thing to do. And I didn't think smoking was really good for you, so I didn't think that would be a good thing. And I said, thank you. Thank you very much for that advice. And got up and laughed. <laughs> I think it's possible to make a breakthrough in your career without massive amounts of whiskey and cigarettes. <laughs> so did you work on deepening your voice or... Perfecting well, they, your TV voice? Yes, I've, I've tried. And they sent me to a drama coach in New York, which was, was wonderful. And she made me try to sing the New York phone book. You know, so you read, you know, Macduff or McDonald or whatever and their phone number or their dress. And you try to sing the phone book. Well, that was absurd to me. I'm not a singer. No one in our family is. <laughs> no one in our family is. In fact, my kids have said at funerals when everybody's singing, they don't mean you, Mom. <laughs> so, you know, you just kind of work on other aspects of your ability besides you don't have a really big, deep baritone. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's what it is. Try yeah. to make the best of it. So I do have another question. Um, you know, a lot of women in the spotlight at have a harder time hanging on into their older years, um, a sense of ageism, if you will, um, especially in the media. 
How did you overcome that? I mean, you were, I don't know exactly how old you were when you retired, but 48 years, that's a long time. So um, what about your career do you think was different than some of the people that came and go, came and went? Well, I realized that I'm lucky, but I think that you have to develop a talent that is useful. And I think what some television people have recognized is the audience for television is older. And so that's helpful. And although advertisers want, you know, 18 to 54 or something younger than that, they want females and they're always interested in the advertising dollar and who's watching and who's buying the product that's being advertised. And I think there's an affinity for people who look like you, Mm -hmm. somebody who's not particularly threatening looking somebody who looks like you, somebody who speaks your language, somebody who you're comfortable watching, and that's helpful. So what about you in particular, do you think, was that? I mean, what, what did you find to be your talent or um, your look or your, you know, what kept you front and center as really Seattle's news anchor of choice for decades? Uh, maybe part of it is that I was very involved in the community. I still am. And so that's an adjunct to anchoring the news. And I think people recognize that I wasn't just reading something. I really believed it. I really felt it. I'd really lived it. And uh, I think, so that's an adjunct. I think most people have to develop something that's a different, kind of a different direction or a different talent or something that sets you apart. Mm -hmm. And I also had this, as they call it, a franchise which was health reporting and developed um, a really strong interest in what's very, very strong in Seattle, which is health and medical research and science. And I developed a really strong interest in an ability to report some of these stories. And I think if something complicated, if I can understand it and then I can explain it to the audience, I think people appreciate getting that information. Mm-hmm. So it's a, I think that's a, important thing for other people to know is develop some expertise that makes you Mm -hmm. strong in your field. Tell me about some of the most challenging stories to tell and why. Always the hardest stories for me, especially from the anchor desk, are stories that don't end well for children. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I believe that we're not supposed to, you know, tell somebody how we feel about a story We're not really supposed to expose our emotions completely, but sometimes you just can't help it. There's stories that the audience knows this is a terrible thing that happens. You know it's a terrible thing, and um, you have to get through it. You have to relay the information, but always stories about children in trouble were the hardest hardest part for me. Major highlights? What would you consider some of your biggest successes throughout your career? Maybe interviewing a number of presidents. Ooh. Yeah, very fun. I interviewed Ronald Reagan, and at the time he was known as a movie star, basically, running for president. And I'm a young whippersnapper, and I think, how can a movie star become president? And this is just completely weird. And my husband likes to play that tape back because he thinks I look like such an idiot. I look like I'm thinking, how can a movie star become president? (laughs) Because I don't have a poker face. I'm just looking through the interview like, really? This man is going to be president. A lot of people think he turned out to be a really, really good president and a fine person. And so that was, I learned a lot. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot about deportment at the very least and also demeanor. 
Uh, I interviewed Barack Obama, and that was very interesting because his mom uh, and I went to the same high school. So I walked in, and as an interviewer of a president, you get about three minutes, max. So the first thing I said to him is, I went to school with your mom. Well, that gave me at least 15 minutes, right? (laughs) And he asked, you know, what was she like, and what do you remember, and this and that. And I said she was quirky, and she was very intellectual, and she was funny. And so then I turned to him, and I said, to what do you think you got from your mom? What are those traits do you have? And he was relatively new in the presidency. And the first thing he said, just quick as that, I'm really funny. Well, at the time, if we can remember back that many years ago, he didn't strike us as funny. He struck us as very composed and very serious and very scholarly. But towards the end, you saw his humor. And now, of course, that he's not in the White House, you see lots more humor, lots more personality. But yeah. um, Knowing his mom, Obama's mama, <laughs> uh, gave me a few more minutes with him. And um, I was much more serious at that point about presidential politics. So I think my department was slightly better, <laughs> slightly more respectful. <laughs> oh, that sounds really incredible. I can't tell you how much. I would love to have lunch with both Barack and Michelle Obama. Uh-huh. And so on that same vein, what were some of your biggest shortcomings or misses or areas that you feel like didn't work out in your career? Um, Well, honestly, I always thought they were going to fire me. I always thought, well, gosh, I wouldn't hire me. Um, So I really went through life thinking, well, I, I should be prepared that someday soon they might fire me. You know, television is a finicky business, and they have what they call a Q score, like, does the audience like you? And they wouldn't fess up about what your Q score was, and so you went to renegotiate your contract, which I always did myself without a lawyer or an agent. And um, I thought, well, this is the year that they're going to say, okay, your contract's up. Bye-bye. Have a nice life. And as it turned out, I worked there as long as I wanted, and it was I who said, I'm done. They never said, you're done. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was a shortcoming as I was never completely confident that uh, I was solid in that chair. Wow. That's a long time to be <laughs> nervous not about being fired. <laughs> yeah. I know. 48 years. If I had I mean, it to do again, I would approach things with more self-confidence. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can imagine when you're paving the way, you don't really know what to expect. So You don't know how to dress and you don't know how to talk. I remember... The, so the anchor man who moved over for me, the first one, wore a leisure suit, sort of a powder blue leisure suit. And I thought, well, I can't do that. And he had a big, deep, beautiful voice. And I thought, I can't do that. <laughs> and um, there were a lot of things where I just realized I, I just have to be me because I can't be him. I'm just not good at being him. And so you have to figure out who you are. Mm-hmm. And, and that's fun, challenging, difficult. But, you know, what makes you different? What makes you valuable to this team? Mm-hmm. Probably the same in any business. Like, what makes you valuable to your work? I'm asking you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's uncomfortable she... for me to be asked the questions. Yeah. I'd like to ask you. There she is trying to take over the interview. Well, actually, this is off, off what we'd originally talked about. But I am curious if you have advice for other women or really other people who are breaking trail into uncharted territory. I mean, if you were to give a piece of advice to everyone out there who's trying something new that hasn't been done before, what would you tell them? 
you might expect that sometimes you'll fail and you'll learn from that and then you'll move ahead. But I think the biggest thing that I learned is that I should have approached opportunities with more confidence. I'm here for a reason. I have things to offer. I can get better. Um, and I, I deserve an opportunity to try and to get better. And so I just would have approached it with more self-confidence than I did. And that's what I would tell other people. Be confident about yourself and your abilities um, and be respectful of the fact that you're part of a team and other people in the team have <clears throat> other abilities that are complementary to yours and move ahead together. I think that's super important is to be part of a team that works well together and brings different um, talents to bear on whatever the project is. Mm, that's great advice. I'm going to switch directions a little bit and head over to your personal life and how that worked into your professional life. You're also a mother times two to my two favorite cousins. If you're listening, Mark and Kayla, I love you guys too. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, and with that, I mean, I also understand that you were the first woman to sit behind the anchor desk while pregnant um, and that that was something that people were not sure that the public was going to receive well. So tell us about that. What challenges did you face? What victories did you experience? And yeah. I Can mean, we say part of this interview is the dog that's in the room? Yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, I think one of the challenges of being pregnant at that time was they, a lot of people, including the managers that I work for, thought it might be a good idea to go home and, you know, be 100% in raising your child. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't, my father was the main one who, who thought that would be a good idea. And so I said, Dad, that, that's an idea, but that's not my idea. So. And he eventually was persuaded to my viewpoint and supported me to keep on working and turned out to be, you know, proud of, of what I was doing. And it gave my parents an opportunity to be really good involved grandparents. Um, but I think the single thing that sticks out in my mind is they, they the managers, they didn't want to see the the pregnant belly of a pregnant woman. So the the chairs that we sat in got pumped up or pumped down, and mine got pumped way down so that my pregnancy was hidden under the desk. And all you could see is these, like, pussycat bows that I wore at the time, like some fairly hideous pregnancy <laughs> outfits that didn't look like a man's suit and tie. It looked like a lady's little pink dress. I mean, there were things that we all had to get used to. Anyway, the audience was so supportive. It's one of the best things that I learned is that particularly women who were home were like, yes, you keep going because you're showing us that when um, when we go out to find a job, we will be able to be a parent and we will be able to keep a job at the same time. It's not easy. You know, you have to say, I'm not going to do this or that perfectly, but I'm going to try and meld the two jobs well. And I think people around you have to be supportive. Your Your workers have to be supportive. Your family has to be supportive. Um, your kids have to be okay with it because they can put up quite a fuss. Mm-hmm. But I think it's uh, it worked out really well. I mean, I, I don't think you get everything all the time. I don't think you can be like the perfect worker, the perfect parent all the time, but you can keep trying. I used to think, well, if it's like kind of problematic at home, I can go to the office and things will go better there. And what's really hard is if things in both places are not going well. <laughs> That's a bad day. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember in high school, I stayed with you guys a lot, and we'd mm-hmm. be sitting at the kitchen table watching the news, watching you on TV, and about 20 minutes later, you'd show up for dinner. 
And so tell us about, you know, how you balanced all that. Because it was a lot of back and forth. And, you know, obviously they do a lot to get you ready for TV. And here you are going back and forth, you know, spending dinner time hours with your kids while also reporting on the 6 o'clock news and the 11 o'clock news. So I was really lucky. I think the people for whom I worked were quite supportive and made it possible for me to go home for dinner. And although, <laughs> poor kids, as you well know, um, you as well as my kids all played sports. And so by the time they got home, which was a little bit before I got home, they would have had, I don't know how many, six bowls of cereal while waiting for us to have dinner. Lots of bagels. Oh, lots of bagels. <laughs> oh, waiting for us to have dinner together. And now when I get so hungry, I can hardly think. I, I feel especially bad that... I just, it was important to me that we sit down at dinner time and sort of hash out our day. How was school and how was your soccer team? And um, I tried not to talk about my work. And as a consequence, only now are the kids like, really, you interviewed a president? Tell me about it. And so maybe I should have talked a little bit more about my work, but I thought it was just sort of more important to hear what the kids were up to. Mm Mm-hmm. And taking care of yourself during that same time. I mean, obviously, you've always been very... Didn't happen. <laughs> Didn't happen. <laughs> Much more focused on it now. Yeah. Okay. I mean, sometimes your day is just too full. I mean, there were 20 years in there where... I mean, our whole family is crazy about skiing. There were 20 years in there where I didn't ski at all. And, um, and most of those years where I didn't really work out. Fortunately, I didn't eat really badly. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's just a lot of stuff slid. I think people now are better at taking care of themselves and their kids and their work. I just didn't have it figured out. Yeah. I mean, I don't think most of us have it figured out. I still try to balance and, you know, I don't know if you ever did figure it out. <laughs> well, I've always had the opinion that you're, 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 you know, if you're working on your mind, your brain, your intelligence or whatever, it's also important to have that brain located in a really healthy body. So I never figured out why in medicine they separate mental health and physical health. It's the same deal. It's like if your body's not healthy, your mind isn't working really well. And I just sort of let part of that health routine lapse for a long period of time. I'm lucky now that, I mean, all of us in our family are pretty healthy and kind of have the workout routine. Put that almost first now. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about what your daily routine looked like when you were on the air full-time and, you know, helping with homework and cooking dinner and doing everything? It um, was always, the schedule was always changing. So I worked at night. My, my first anchor job was late at night. And um, so we would have somebody with the kids until I would get home and then I'd get up with the kids in the morning. So that was a period of time where I didn't sleep very much. And then I worked early in the morning. And then I would get home at noon and be able to go to practice with the kids after school and um, have dinner with them. And then I had a pretty normal 9-to-5 shift. And so I'd take the kids to school and I'd go to work and they'd come home from school and shortly thereafter I'd come home from work. And, I mean, the shifts, that was a very... It's hard for... Your body to adjust a night shift, a day shift, a, a late evening shift. It's to make those, and it's also kind of difficult in the family. So, if y'all can get like a regular shift and stay on it, that's really <laughs> a good thing. And how has your routine changed? I mean, you're not working full time, but um, 
you obviously found ways to take care of yourself. Um, first thing I do is go to the gym or go outside now. It's absolutely the first thing I do in the morning. And if I don't get to it first thing in the morning, often it slides and I don't get to it. So, you know, I like to spend an hour or two in the morning swimming, skiing, <laughs> going to the gym, something like that. Mm-hmm. Then I'm a happy camper. Yeah. What is your most memorable moment from your time as an anchor woman? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, most memorable. There's so many. Uh, Tell us about a few of them. I remember interviewing Jimmy Carter on Air Force One, and they said, you'll be airborne with him, and then when he's finished doing whatever work he's doing on Air Force One, um, they'll let you know. Well, it didn't work out that way. It was um, the president who came back to where the photographer and I were sitting in the back of the plane, and he walked right into the area where we were sitting, and he said, hi, I'm Jimmy. And I was taken so aback because I'm all ready to, you know, be summoned to the front of the plane and say, Mr. President. But, and then I stood up and greeted him, and he wasn't very much taller than I was, and he had an old gray sweater on. He wasn't dressed in a president's suit. And he was just so regular a guy. Uh, it just didn't seem presidential to me. And that was that's one of the things that really stands out in my mind. And he's, I think he's a terrific former president. His, his life has been spent in such valuable ways. But I always go back to that moment where I learned that he was just um, very down home, very down to earth. And I think that sort of informs everything that we know about him after that. that. That's one thing that really stands out because you don't expect to be introduced to, you expect to say, well, it's an honor to meet you, Mr. President. And what if he says, he says, hi, I'm Jimmy. Then you go, hi, I'm Jean. <laughs> that's not exactly what you're supposed to do, but that's kind of what I thought. Well, okay, it's like we're on a first name basis now. Yeah. No, I said it's. I stood up and I said it's an honor to meet you, Mr. President. And I have a picture. I was at the time of the interview. I was very pregnant, and one of my kids saw that picture some years later, and and she said, "Oh, you've interviewed a president." I said, "Yes." And I said, "Actually, you were part of that interview. You were there." <laughs> and then she became sort of interested in what my job had been. Yeah. <laughs> really proud of all of you because you do things that like my job wasn't even possible for me to imagine when I had it. The same as your jobs. And the fact that you have two jobs and the fact that my daughter is a consultant for three companies and my other daughter is on the road every week with her company that's all of you guys are involved in startups. You know, it's hard to have imagined. And I think You know, for the next generation, it'll be the same thing. There'll be jobs in artificial intelligence or virtual reality or you name it. Something we haven't imagined. Maybe it'll be on the moon or Mars. So how about your most memorable moment as a parent? Or proudest moment or most difficult moment? Um, The kids were really good at arguing. And so I developed this thing that was like, give me 10 good reasons. So they go, you know, I want to go out and stay out till two in the morning when they're only, you know, in middle school or something. I said, well, give me 10 good reasons. And sometimes they could sell me and sometimes they couldn't. Like staying out till two if you're in middle school never sold me. Jenny was on a state championship soccer team. And the girls on the team that were older were going to go out and have a beer. Jenny was, as I recall, a freshman, Right. And she wanted to go with the kids and have a beer. And one of the, so the big girls on the team was like, I'll watch your, 
you know, we'll take good care of her, etc. And I just, I wouldn't let her go. And she went to bed crying and she said, this is the worst day of my whole life. It was going to be the best day of my whole life, and I'm only 13, and now you've made it the worst day of my whole life. <laughs> and she cried, and I cried, and I felt terrible. And I mean, I think I did the right thing. I don't think a 13-year-old should go out and drink beer. But it was difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Found myself in similar positions over yeah. the years. <laughs> so moving on, I think... This might be one of our final questions before our lightning round, but Mm -hmm. um, somewhat timely with the Me Too movement Mm -hmm. going on right now. Um, Curious if you have any relatable experiences there. We'd love to hear about them and how you overcame them. And I I think most people in the world of work and personal relationships have had experiences that, if not a Me Too moment, have been particularly challenging. We'll start the answer by saying it's okay to say no you have confidence in yourself and and believe in yourself and don't let somebody convince you to do something that you don't think is right that you're not comfortable with but you know there's one um instance i can think of where we had a new highly touted news director come to the station and we were developing a pilot for a new program and it was myself and another woman on the set and then a number of women in the studio working on this this pilot project. And he said something in, we have this gear in our ear where the boss in the booth speaks to you. And he spoke to me on the set and he said something that I thought was just quite rude and crude. And I said, do you mind if I repeat that to everybody who's in the studio? Well, he didn't answer. And I repeated exactly what he said to everybody in the studio. And um, that's where it ended, right there. And he he never behaved that way with me again. And in fact, a number of the women in the newsroom at the time were like, I'm really glad that you did that because he's been coming on to me or saying things like that to me. And maybe they were younger or they hadn't been there as long and they felt like they couldn't stand up to him. And then so this behavior was fine after that. He didn't get fired. I didn't sue. Um, life went on. And I know that if you tell that story now, people will go, well, you should have nipped it in the bud by, you know, going to the management and, you know, having him fired or something. It wasn't my way. It wasn't the time. And uh, maybe the methods are completely different now. And I do think for me too to be effective, it has to be more than um, a series of celebrities saying me too. There have to be real changes in how we raise our kids and how we approach our jobs and how HR departments set rules and how Congress sets rules. And I just think it's a, it's a very teachable moment or unfortunately a lot of teachable moments that we're being made aware of. Anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Anything else you want to tell us? Just be confident. Be confident and be imaginative about what else is out there that you can do. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So lightning round is basically the final round of questions and they're pretty basic questions. So just answer really quickly. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee and tea. Oh, both. Bagels or donuts? Neither. Neither. <laughs> no carbs for Jean. <laughs> Carrots, celery, kale. <laughs> we ate a lot of Noah's bagels yeah. uh, in the Anderson household in yeah. high school. So. It's yes. interesting to see that everyone in the family has now moved on from bagels. Yeah. Uh, bikes or skis? 
Both. Both. It just have to be either or. I mean, isn't it okay to go skiing in the morning and go for a long bike ride in the afternoon? Absolutely. That's our way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, best thing you've read recently? Um, I'm reading a book by John McPhee called The Fourth Draft. And he's really an exceptional, wonderful, uh, exceptionally wonderful writer. And it's how he writes. And I'm trying to write for my kids. And it's very, very instructive for me. What are you trying to write for your kids? Well, starting with, you know, oh, you interviewed presidents. Well, what was your job like? And if they're interested in it now, I'd like to share some of the things I learned with them. And so I'm trying to write some of those things for them. Are you writing those for your nieces and nephews as well? Uh, If it's it's interesting, (laughs) if I ever get it done, um, or if it's interesting to you, you're welcome to it. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jean. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Cassie. And um, yeah. Good luck in your work. Thank you. Be confident that you're doing a really terrific job of what you're doing, both jobs or in the future, three or four jobs. (laughs) Hopefully not three or four. That's a lot. That was Jean Anderson. America's first anchor woman and almost 50-year broadcast journalist for NBC's news station King 5 News out of Seattle. Jean also happens to be one of the strong women who has shaped my own personal growth and career, so thanks for listening in. On the next episode of Wild Rye Radio, Katie and I will be tackling some of today's hottest topics and conversations in the outdoor industry together. If you enjoyed Wild Rye Radio, leave us a review on iTunes, or if you know a trailbreaker we should interview, shoot us an email at hello at wild-rye.com. We'll see you in a couple weeks. And in the meantime, get out there and play wild.